This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain. Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat up old running shoes. Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking... But I'm also busy performing brain surgery. Well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. Greetings, listeners. It's time for the September 2021 episode. I'm news editor Ezzy Pearson, and I'm joined on the podcast today by staff writer Ian Hello. Coming up later, we'll be telling you how to observe the lunar X and V on the moon. But for now, we're going to be taking a look at what we learned whilst putting together the September 2021 issue of the magazine. Now, when it comes to astronomy, there's really one instrument that defines the entire discipline, and that's the telescope. There are, of course, other ways of observing the night sky uh, with your naked eyes and with binoculars. But certainly when it comes to the world of uh, doing professional space science, it's telescopes that really do the lion's share of the work. Um, And over the years, there have definitely been a a couple of telescopes that have really made their impact in the field of astronomy and revolutionised how we look at the night sky. Yes, exactly. Um, And sort of, I suppose, if you you are thinking about the telescopes that have have changed astronomy, you would go all the way back to the first telescope, wouldn't you? (laughs) Which is is sort of um, (laughs) generally considered to be Galileo's refractor. I mean... I was thinking about this and, you know, usually with something as something that's a really sort of ubiquitous invention that's everywhere, I think, you know, it's quite difficult to sort of actually pinpoint what the first incarnation of that was, you know, because 
who can say who was the first person to sort of you know create the you know like the, the the optics that would magnify light um but generally speaking when we're talking about sort of european astronomy and and and, and the telescope as we know it in terms of a a um celestial observing instrument people go people go back to the netherlands in 1608 um with the um spectacle makers uh hans lippershey and zacharias jansen and jacob matthias hopefully i pronounced those names right so they are sort of considered to be the first people who created um, the concept of a telescope. But as far as I understand it, those were mostly used for earthly matters, for observing things on Earth and, you know, for military purposes and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the story goes that it was Galileo who was the first to create his own um, refracting telescope uh, in 1609 and use it for the purposes of observing, um, you know, bodies of the solar system, for observing the stars. Uh, refracting telescope um, is referring to ones that uses its lenses as opposed to any other kinds of things, just in case anybody listening at home wasn't. Cool. Sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cheers, Ez. Um, now, uh, supposedly, uh, Galileo's first telescope could magnify um, objects by about three times, but he kept working on, on the instrument and it got up to like eight times magnification, eventually 30 times. And um, the really interesting thing about when you consider Galileo's telescope and its effect on astronomy is it's 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 not just that he created the capability of observing distant objects like the moon and the planets. Um, it's also that it's sort of almost single-handedly changed the way humanity considered itself within the context of the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the the first the first objects Galileo sort of. Uh, observed were like the moon. So he observed the moon um, and he created sketches of the moon uh, and he found it had mountains and, and craters and the, all these features. And then I suppose most famously, he observed uh, Jupiter and four of its moons, its largest moons, which now, of course, we know as uh, the Galilean moons, uh, which are Europa, Callisto, Ganymede and Io. Um, and those, I mean, you know, astronomically speaking, it's it's... It's fantastic, of course, getting a, a closer look at these at these bodies, but it's also sort of noticing, first of all, that the moon is sort of imperfect and it's not this perfect sphere, this sort of almost like um, godly, otherworldly, you know, perfect sphere. It, it does have sort of imperfections. That was a term Galileo used to describe it when he was... <laughs> <laughs> well, whatever the word for Wibbly is in Italian. <laughs> um uh, yeah, yeah, you're right, Ez. And, and also, the, also, of course, this idea that, you know, um, Earth is at the uh, centre of the solar system or Earth is at the centre of the universe, which, you know, um, a lot of sort of work on the on the heliocentric model had been done by Copernicus. Uh, you know, the, the idea that the sun is actually at the centre of the solar system and everything re- revolves around the sun mm-hmm. or it's the sun. Um, and observing Jupiter and its moons, you know, Jupiter is a planet, Jupiter has moons. So maybe Earth is, is also dragging the moon um, across the solar system, maybe, maybe the moon's going around Earth, and, and Earth is going around the sun, and, every, and the sun's actually at the center of the solar system. Um, so, yeah, as as you said, it sort of helped us understand maybe perhaps our own sort of insignificance, but it also it it made those celestial objects a bit more ordinary, which I think in a way makes mm. them a bit more extraordinary because you sort of think, well, they're not sort of these like perfect spheres, there are imperfections and those imperfections are there to be studied and understood. And there must be other imperfections throughout the, throughout the solar system and throughout the cosmos that are just waiting to be discovered and understood. 
it's if you actually the the way that the telescope was described in the early patents and and people talking about it was an instrument to make things that are far away look as if they are close up and that really kind of hit for me because it suddenly made me realize it is you know we take for granted the fact that you know everything's got a zoom lens and you can look at stuff that's far away but this was just like even the concept of being able to do that was completely new to these people um so it, it must have been quite a big shift at the time yeah indeed it, it always it, thinking about that sort of thing it always brings me back to um the late uh Pat, patrick moore's house because he called his house farthings which is like a play in words mm-hmm. far things and when you think about that like this it's it's sort of like a, a humorous pun but there's also something quite philosophical about that and something it sort of it really gets to the heart of what astronomy is isn't it you're you're just basically trying to see far things in, in you know in better <laughs> clarity aren't you <laughs> And it's just as the telescopes get bigger, bigger things get further away. That's all that um, happens. There's a, a few other sort of um, of Galileo's observations that are worth sort of touching on. Um, he, he did observe Ga- um, uh, Saturn's rings, but he didn't realise that there were rings. He thought they were like um, perhaps moons, or I think he called them arms. He wasn't sure what they were. Uh, and it wasn't um, mm. until uh, uh, Christian Huygens um, used even better telescopes about 50 years later that he was the first to sort of say that they were rings. Um, which is obviously why uh, the uh, where the uh, Cassini Huygens name got its uh, uh, mission got its name from you know the Huygens lander that landed on Titan named after Huygens who'd discovered um, Saturn's rings um, and he was also uh, Galileo was also one of the first uh, Western astronomers um, that, there was like a, a, a group of um, European astronomers who sort of independently of one another were observing sunspots at the time which are these sort of dark spots that are cooler cooler spots on the surface of the sun, so they, they appear darker than their surroundings. Um, and they were some of the first uh, Western astronomers to uh, observe them. But, but apparently, we, apparently we now know that Chinese astronomers um, were observing sunspots as long, as, go, as long ago as like one, 165 BC. Um, mm. And we've got records yeah. uh, of that. But um, as I say, yeah, uh, that was one of, um, one of Galileo's big observations as well. Um, but I, I think ultimately, you know, as we've said already, sort of getting beyond the actual um, practicalities of Galileo's telescope and what it enabled him to um, see, I think its its biggest achievement was just almost sort of kick, kick-starting the field of astronomy and also this idea that we're that the human race isn't at the centre of the universe and the Earth isn't at the centre of the universe and there are mysteries yet to be solved and everything can't be sort of explained away by perfect circles and perfect sort of symmetry. Um, but um, it brings us nicely under our next telescope because uh, I suppose Galileo's observations of, of moons and, and, and orbits um, was one of the sort of uh, concepts and theories that was later developed by uh, Isaac Newton um, and who sort of, many would say, improved upon Galileo's um, uh, telescope design, would you say? Well, he came up with a different design, whether or not <laughs> Um, it was better. I think depends on who you talk to. What he designed was the reflecting telescope. So this was a telescope that used mirrors uh, to focus the light instead of lenses. So exactly the same principle of, of using magnifying um, and, and focusing light to, to make the image bigger. Um, and he wasn't the first person to try to do this. Uh, lots of other astronomers had been trying, uh, in such as Nicolo Zucchi and James Gregory, 
uh, were two of the people who'd also tried. Uh, but Newton was the first person to be successful. And this was in the mid-17th century, so only about 50 or 60 years after Galileo had made it hit the first telescope. Um, and the reason why people were, were trying to find another way of um, making telescopes was because Galileo's kind of telescope was affected by something called chromatic aberration. And what this meant was that the light uh, sort of on the edges of various objects picked up these kind of like blue and orange fringes. Um, and nobody was quite sure what they were. Uh, Newton worked out that what was happening was that light wasn't a single colour. It wasn't, it was made up of lots of colours and the lenses were actually splitting apart that light and creating this chromatic aberration. So he decided the best way to get around this was to just get rid of the lenses entirely and use mirrors. Uh, the problem was that they needed to use a very specific shape of mirror called a parabolic mirror. Um, and these were very hard to produce. It was a very specific shape. Because bear in mind, at this time, everybody was trying to produce their mirrors by hand. You know, they were grinding them by hand and they didn't have, you know, all of the fancy instruments we have today to make sure that it was exactly the right place, um, exactly the right shape. Um, what Newton did, compared to the other people who'd been trying at the time, was make a spherical mirror, um, which is a lot more of a, a kind of smooth shape. It's a lot easier to grind. Um, it's a lot easier to, to sort of make sure you've got it correct. Uh, this did introduce a, a new type of problem. It got rid of that chromatic fringing aberration and introduced spherical aberration, uh, where different bits of, of the, the, the light hitting different places on the mirror don't quite focus in the same place and it blurs out your image slightly. Um, but a lot of people thought that that problem was better than having these weird colored fringes on the side of your, your telescope. Um, he first showed his telescope off to the Royal Society in 1671, um, where it was an absolute hit, everybody loved it. Uh, he ended up demonstrating it to King Charles II. Um, and, and it's become, you know, the basis of, of pretty much every mirror-based reflecting telescope since um, has been Newton's, based on Newton's design. Another 50 years after he made it, uh, John Hadley, another astronomer, came along and worked out how to make parabolic mirrors, eliminating the spherical aberration. Um, and then again in 1930, somebody else came along, uh, Mr. Schmidt, and created the Schmidt corrector plate, which was... As it, as it sounds, just a plate, glass plate that went in front of the, the telescope and that adjusted all of the light slightly so that you could make a spherical mirror focus and get rid of the spherical aberration. Um, and that made telescopes suddenly much cheaper and easier to, to make as well. So Newton came up with the original design, but it has been adjusted and and perfected in the years since yeah and it's incredible and as you said you know um it's you know newton's design informs the still informs the the uh, reflecting telescope today which you know like the uh, newtonian telescope you know being the yeah uh, mm -hmm. newtonian reflector being a, a perfect example and you know this is the same with the refractor you know both both models are are still being used today by amateur astronomers and mm. and uh, professional astronomers um you know, I mean, it, it sort of, you sort of think about the um, the uh, reflecting telescope 
built in uh, you know Burr Castle by Lord Ross, you know the uh, the Great Leviathan in, in Ireland, and uh, so many other famous telescopes since then, and huge observatories that have that have adopted that sort of reflecting reflecting tele- telescope design. Um, it's incredible, isn't it? You know, mm-hmm. like you make something and it's a good design, and it just it's stay. You know, like it's sort of tweaked. It's tweaked <laughs> throughout throughout the centuries, but you know, it's it's like a, a good design is a good design. Yeah, they just basically got bigger. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, you fix the odd problem here and the odd problem there. And now it tends to be, do you like to have the... the, Because mirrors are cheaper and easier to make than lenses. So do you want the nice, cheap mirror so you can have a good lot of area? Um, But mirrors are a bit hard to... They take a lot of finagling to reflecting telescopes. So instead, do you go for the the refracting telescopes, which you basically just plonk on a tripod and you're good to go? Um, Yeah, and and you don't need to collimate it or anything like that, yeah. (laughs) But yes, most of the professional telescopes out there in the world today are based on the reflecting on the Newtonian design. And there's one particular one, uh, which other people might have heard of, and that's the Hubble Space Telescope. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) might just have heard of that one. I know. I mean, like when you think about, um, you know, uh, Galileo and and Newton and and their telescope designs. If you could go back in in time and, and tell them one day there's going to be a telescope that's actually going to be in space orbiting Earth, I mean, that would just absolutely mm. blow their minds. They just wouldn't believe you. But yes, no, I, I, as you say, I mean, you know, you can't talk about telescopes that changed astronomy without talking about uh, the Hubble Space Telescope, which you know launched on. Twenty uh, fourth of April, nineteen ninety, launched into Earth orbit, um, and yeah, it's, it's a telescope that orbits Earth. Um, the idea um, goes back to the nineteen forties. Um, it's sort of um, attributed to the U.S. astrophysicist uh, Lyman Spitzer Jr., who spoke about uh, launching a telescope into space so that it could observe beyond the distorting effects of Earth's atmosphere. And then in the in the nineteen seventies. You know, the uh, U.S. Congress approved funding for what would eventually become uh, the Hubble Space Telescope. Hubble was named after Edwin Hubble, who um, was a famous U.S. astronomer. In the 1920s, he made observations that um, proved the Andromeda galaxy lay beyond our own galaxy, and therefore there are other galaxies beyond our own. And also his calculations led to um, evidence that the universe is expanding. So it's sort of no wonder that, you know, the Hubble Space Telescope was named after such an influential um, astronomer who made some of the the biggest discoveries um, of the the 20th century. Um, And I'm I'm also thinking, you know... um, when you, when you sort of go th- go through the list of deep sky objects that the Hubble Space Telescope has observed over the decades, loads loads of them are, for example, like Messier objects or like NGC objects that were, you know, maybe first discovered by you know astronomers like William Herschel. And again, it's that idea of going back going back in time and, and seeing you know William Herschel looking at a sort of distant galaxy or nebula uh, as he might have known it, um, and just. Just just imagining what what he saw when he looked at a, a specific uh, galaxy or deep sky object, or you know globular cluster or something like that, and what we can what we've now seen with the Hubble Space Telescope, I and mean, it's just completely changed the way we look at the universe. I suppose you know like you can't really talk about Hubble without at least talking about the the um, optical flaw that had to be corrected. Can you? You know, I mean that's that's sort of like a it was a pretty big. Uh, Pretty pretty big failure at the time, I think, um, because um, I think they were, they were pretty sort of lamp- NASA was pretty sort of lampooned in the press, weren't they? You know, this massive telescope has gone up and and using public funding, and now it doesn't even work. <laughs> oh yeah, no, it got. Um, I remember there was the film Naked Gun, 
featured a joke. It was like a, a list of all of the like biggest, most expensive failures throughout history. And the Hubble Space Telescope was one of them. And that was a film done in between that era. Oh, right. So it was, it, was, it was a big joke at the okay, time. Okay, I didn't know that. It's years since I've seen that film. Uh, I have to go back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. <laughs> um, but but you know the, the the great thing about Hubble was it was designed to be serviced. So once they came up with the idea, they sent you know astronauts up on the space shuttle and and, and fixed the problem. And then throughout the throughout the years, um, various space shuttle missions have repaired and upgraded Hubble. Um, and you know with with new technology, as new technology has has become uh, available, um, and when you think of some of the most you know iconic images of space. Um, they have probably become, they have probably come from the Hubble Space Telescope, you know. So it's had that it's had that sort of direct effect on um, popular culture and sort of um, I suppose like astronomy and space and cosmology within the mind of um, sort of the general public, you know, sort of non astronomers. Um, mm-hmm. So I thought it'd be worth just going through a, a list of some of the um, just a few of the of the many things that Hubble has done. Um, so um, it's it's helped astronomers determine the age of the universe. It's pretty good. <laughs> it's not, not a bad one. <laughs> good stuff. Uh, it made the first confirmed detection of a supermassive black hole at, um, at the centre of um, galaxy M87. You think of the uh, Pillars of Creation image um, in the Eagle Nebula, these cosmic clouds, and you can see sort of newborn stars mm. shining. Uh, the Hubble Ultra Deep Field in 2004 revealed over 10,000 galaxies, some nearly as old as the universe. Um, it's been used to explore gravitational lensing, which is a phenomenon um, initially predicted by Einstein, where the light from distant galaxies is magnified by the mass of closer galaxy clusters. So it's sort of like a cosmic magnifying glass using using the mass of galaxies as a sort of a magnifying glass, which is pretty cool. Closer to home, it's observed uh, you know iconic features such as like Jupiter's Great Red Spot. Um, it spotted fragments of Comet Shoemaker-Levy crashing into the planet. Um, it's pr- produced the first ever images of Saturn's moon Titan, and it's discovered moons around Pluto, rings around Uranus. It's made measurements of exoplanets, you know, planets orbiting stars beyond our our solar system. I mean, you know, you, you could do a, a podcast on just the Hubble Space Telescope alone, which I think we did do quite oh. recently during one of its anniversaries. Yeah, you could you could write that people have written books and. All kinds of things. Um, there's 15,000 scientific papers, at least, have come. That's the last number I have. Numbers probably gone up by now. Um, have come out of data taken by the Hubble um, Space Telescope. Yeah. And that's just going to go up and up. And yeah, up. Uh, exactly. And, you know, e- even after Hubble retires, when it eventually does, you know, that, that data will be used mm. by ge- generation after generation of, you know, PhD students writing their papers and you know, planetary scientists and cosmologists and astronomers. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, just spe- speaking of its retirement, there w- the, there were sort of fears relatively recently, weren't they, in the past few months that the uh, Hubble was in a bit of trouble, but it, it seems to have pulled through, doesn't it? Yes. So Hubble is, at this point, it's well over 30 years old. It's beginning to show signs of its age. Um 
So back in uh, July, uh, uh, back in June, there was a a, a computer fault, basically, um, that put it into safe mode. And the, the team behind Hubble ended up taking a month to get it back online. Um, Hubble had had problems previously with various things going off online, you know, stuff happens. Um, but most of the time, NASA could get it back online almost instantly, like, and just be down for a couple of days. But this time it was down for an entire month, um, which had a lot of people worried. And it's, you know, it's basically, Hubble has lots of backups on it. Every space mission does. But now the backups are beginning to, they're relying on a lot of the backups and the backups are beginning to fail as well. So there is concerns that the days of Hubble might be coming to an end. Um, we don't know when, um, and they are going to, I'm sure that NASA is going to run Hubble until it dies. Um, <laughs> it's just way too useful not to. Um, yeah. So we will have to wait and see. Hopefully it will be around for another couple of years yet. Hopefully it will make it to its 35th anniversary in 2025. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm hoping And at least for. we'll get another podcast out of it. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> um, just just before we move on from space telescopes, there is another one I wanted to talk about, which is uh, SOHO, uh, the Solar and Heliospheric Observatory, which is a joint NASA and European Space Agency um, project, uh, uh, mission, um, which launched in 1995. And rather than sort of looking outwards uh, to the cosmos, it's looking inwards because it's looking at the sun. Um, it was only supposed to operate from 1995 to 1998, but it's um, been so success- successful that its mission has been extended multiple times, which is pretty uh, useful if you're observing mm. the sun because um, the sun goes through a period of uh, peaks and troughs in its activity, quiet periods, and then really active periods of about 11 years. And these are called solar cycles. So SOHO has lasted um, longer than um, anticipated, which means it's the uh, data can sort of analyze these peaks and troughs, these solar cycles. Um, and, you know, when you think about it, if you're going to launch a, an amazing telescope that can look at um, cosmic objects without the distorting effects of Earth's atmosphere, you you would launch one to look at the sun, wouldn't you? you know, that the sun being the source of mm. our life being, you know, um, has sort of a constant um, influence on the planets and other bodies of the solar system, shapes and affects them. So understanding the sun sort of helps us understand the, the processes of the solar system. And it's also, you know, observing the sun is also, it's really our, our best chance at, um, our best opportunity to observe a star up close, isn't it? You know, like a, like there's a star just yeah. there that we can we can take a look at and um, analyze and work out what's going on. Um, yeah, so uh, SOHO has um, looked at solar phenomena like coronal mass ejections and prominences, all of which sort of, which do you think um, need to be better understood? So SOHO has, has really led the way in solar science. It's captured um, images of the sun's convection zone, which is this uh, upper layer of its interior, and it's studied sunspots. And that's really cool, thinking back to Galileo and all those other European mm. astronomers observing sunspots or even going back to, you know, 165 BC when the, those Chinese astronomers were looking at sunspots and working out what they are. And now we've got a, an orbiting telescope um, showing us them and, you know, uh, amazing images of them up close yeah. and... Uh, examining them in different in different wavelengths and things like that, um, and it's also been measuring the solar wind, which is this uh, stream of charged particles that emanates from the sun and um, generates aurora and um, sort of affects the bodies of the solar system. 
Um, but apparently Soho, was, apparently Soho has also discovered 3,000 new comets, which I didn't know. And these yeah. new, new, new solar phenomena called uh, coronal waves and solar tornadoes. Um, so it's had quite a, quite a sort of um, lifespan so far. Um, and yeah, it's incredible. If, if you go to the NASA Soho website, there's amazing images and different wavelengths of the sun. And you can see uh, all these glorious videos and animations and things. It's, it's, it's fantastic. It's, it's not really spoken about that much, but um, yeah. Yeah. It's it's the sun doesn't get the credit definitely <laughs> in astronomy, um, and it's like yeah you can go on the Soho website and you know look at daily updates and see what's going on with the sun right now. Um, and there there have since Soho there's been a couple of more um, solar probes that have gone out, uh, particularly the Solar Orbiter and the Parker Solar Probes. Um, but those are ones that are going to be getting right in close to the sun, whereas Soho's kind of set back quite a lot. Um, it's it's near closer to Earth orbit, so it's it's looking with a with a very big telescope from from a distance, but that gives us a a, a great view, and hopefully helps us predict whether a solar storm is on the way, uh, whether we're likely to have aurora tonight. All of these kinds of things come from Soho. Yeah, fantastic object. So those are some of the big telescopes from the past, but obviously people are constantly building new ones, and there's quite a few that are on the way which whilst they haven't changed the way we look at astronomy yet, they're probably going to in the future. Um, On Earth, there's been a big boom lately in building what's called extremely large telescopes because astronomers like to name things very simply sometimes. (laughs) Um, And this is the sort of collective name for any telescope that has a mirror over 30 metres. And the reason why we haven't built any mirrors this big before is because mainly for a long time, there wasn't any point. One of the big advantages with Hubble is that it's above the Earth's atmosphere, which means it's not affected by something called seeing. Um, That's where the Earth's atmosphere wavers um, as it's different heat, as it's moving around. um, And that causes the light passing through it to waver as well. And it blurs the image. So if you've got a mirror that's over a couple of metres wide, there's no point in getting any bit. Because usually with a telescope, the bigger the mirror is, the the finer resolution you can get. But over a few metres, the resolution is so fine that it's just blurred out at that point by this effect of seeing. Um, That changed in 1990 with the invention of something called adaptive optics. Uh, And this is where underneath the mirror, you have a bunch of little arms, um, little fingers that basically just poke at the mirror and deform it slightly. Um, These are, of course, robotic fingers controlled by a computer, not like lots of people standing there poking it. Um, As funny an image as that is, uh, I just had in my brain. Um, But what that does is it deforms the mirror slightly um, and using various things like using a, a guide star to lock onto and, and, and some fancy computer work, um, the, the telescope can actually correct out this blurring effect from the motion of the atmosphere. And that suddenly meant that you could build telescopes that are, you know, 20, 30 metres across um, and you'd get the benefit from them. Unfortunately, you then have to work out how to build a mirror that is 30 metres across. Um, That is incredibly difficult. Like, for one thing, 
just the logistics of building something yeah. that big. Like, how do you grind a telescope that big? How do you transport it? Um, and also there's there's a, a much bigger problem, which is glass is heavy. Yeah. Metal is heavy. Um, and in fact, it gets so heavy that if you were to build a telescope that big, it would deform under its own weight. So instead, what they do with these big telescopes is they cut them up. And if you look at the sort of designs for these telescopes, they are made up of, of dozens and dozens, sometimes hundreds, of hexagonal mirror segments that slot together. Um, and that's how you come up with these absolutely huge, or we will in the future come up with these absolutely huge um, mirrors. Uh, there are currently two over 30 metre telescopes being built. I should add that these are over 30 meter visible light telescopes. Um, we've been building absolutely huge radio telescopes for years. You know, there's one that's half a kilometer across in China, but when it comes to visible light, they tend to be much smaller. So there's two over 30 that are being built. There is the 30 meter telescope, again, very on the money name there, <laughs> um, being built uh, on top of Mauna Kea in Hawaii. And that's due to be finished by 2027. Um, and then there is the European ELT, um, European Extremely Large Telescope, that will be built in Chile, and that's going to be ready in 2025. And both of those are, are currently under construction, so hopefully we'll be seeing those soon. Um, and who knows, there might even be more along the way. Yeah, I mean, that, and, and that just that really hammers home what you were saying about moving uh, a mirror of that size, because... They have to be in places like, you know, the Atacama Desert in Chile, where, mm. you know, like you can, like just. You, but you can't put it on the back <laughs> of a truck. Because <laughs> it's not even like it's 30, long, kilometer, uh, 30 meters yeah. long. It's also 30 meters yeah. wide. Like, no. Yeah, so you have to cut it up and put yeah, it. Yeah, or putting it in Mount Care or pieces. something like that. It's absolutely incredible, isn't it? You know, yeah. I mean. Yeah. But because I, 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 I suppose, you know, even harder would be launching that into space. So. You mm. the the adaptive optics uh, enables you to build these huge telescopes and not have to worry about launching them into space because you can correct for the distorting effects of our atmosphere through AI yeah. essentially. Yes, exactly. You can. Having said that, they are launching one into space. Um, <laughs> it's just that this one is going to be a little bit more modest. It's going to be six point five meters across, but again with this kind of segmented mirror. And that is the long-awaited James Webb Space Telescope, or JWST. Um, and this is, it's been billed as the kind of successor to Hubble, um, in that it's going to be the next big space mm -hmm. telescope. Uh, but it's actually very different. It doesn't look at visible light, it looks at infrared light. Um, and that's really useful because infrared light can get, can go through things like dust, um, which obscures most of, of what Hubble looks at. Um, and also it's given off by things that are too cold to give off visible light will still give off infrared light. Um, so that lets you look for things like planets and stuff. But what's really cool about JWST is it's been made up of a whole bunch of 18, in fact, hexagons um, that are gold-plated. It looks very shiny, very bling, if you ever look up the pictures of it. It's so cool, it. isn't it? Um, it is, and these are all, all honeycombed together. Um, unfortunately, a 6.5-metre mirror 
is still too big to go on a rocket. Most rockets are only about three metres across. Um, that's why Hubble's mirror is only about two and a half metres. Um, so what they've had to do is they've had to, to put these 18 sections together and then fold up the mirror so that it'll fit in a rocket. That's amazing. Which it's just... It, I just The idea of folding up a mirror amuses me quite mm-hmm. a lot. Um, and then when it gets into space, it will unfold. Um, but it was supposed to launch many, many years ago. Um, but it has been beset by a lot of delays. Uh, the biggest one is to do with its sunshield. So the JWST is looking at infrared light. Um, that means you want your telescope to be very cold. If you don't have a cold telescope when you're looking at infrared, you might as well have built a regular... It's like building a regular telescope out of light tubes. You know, all you're going to see is the telescope, not what it's looking at. Um, So they have to keep it very cold. And they do that through this uh, thing called a sunshield, which is a tennis court-sized umbrella basically which shields the entire telescope from the sun um and again this needs to be folded up so that it can fit into the into the rocket to take it into space um but it's made of this incredibly delicate foil uh capton foil which is the same thing that they put on like if you ever see a picture of a satellite and it's covered in some kind of like shiny silver or gold foil it's (laughs) that um And it's incredibly delicate, incredibly difficult to work with. And back in 2018, it tore um, whilst they were trying to put it together. Um, And they've had lots of problems with with trying to get it completely so that it won't, you know, so that they can guarantee that this incredibly expensive mission has ended up costing $10 million approximately, um, doesn't get into space and then, you know, this thing they've spent ages on just tears the second they try to open yeah, it up. Yeah, because um, un- unlike Hubble, it can't be serviced, can it? Because it's just not in Earth orbit. It's, it's far, far farther away, isn't it? It's at something called the second Lagrangian point, which is 1.5 million kilometres away mm-hmm. from Earth, um, as opposed to Hubble, which is 500 kilometres away from yeah, Earth. Yeah, so you've got to get it right. <laughs> you've got to get it right. Um, also, there's no space shuttle anymore to go out, out there and, and, and look at it. Um, and then you know, obviously um, they had lots of problems in 2020 with sort of uh, COVID and, and, and restrictions. Mm. I remember at the time, um, this, about this time last year, talking to JWST scientists and it was that, that's basically what they were saying was, you know, a lot of their problems this year have just been really just, well, in 2020 have been, have been COVID related. Um, yeah, it's, I, I know that there's a lot of, because... The JWST, because it's just going to to the second Lagrangian point, it doesn't matter too much when it launches. There are some times when it's better than others. But if you've got something like the Mars rovers, like Perseverance, back in February last year, that has to go in February or it won't get there. Like, so it, it, it did mean that the JWST was sometimes a bit pushed back in terms of priorities. Um... But that said, the dead the, the the launch window has only slipped by about a month from when they were hoping. Um, so it's only a couple of months, um, and it is aiming. Hopefully, they hope will launch in November this year. So in a couple of months, we could be finally seeing our first images from the JWST. Um, yeah, 
which it's 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 kind of like a, a weird one for me because pretty much throughout my entire career in astronomy, which has been going on for almost 15 years now, people have been talking about the JWST. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those ones that has been being built and worked on and developed and everybody's saying it's like, oh, and well, when we get the JWST, we'll be able to look at this thing or we'll be able to do yeah. that thing. Um, and so the fact that it is finally about to go up um, is is quite strange to me. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think that 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 will definitely warrant um a yeah, podcast special before the end of the year, won't it? Absolutely. Hopefully you'll be saying it's all brilliant and wonderful and working well. <laughs> um but that is is certainly it looks like it is set to be the next big telescope that's really going to change how we look at the 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 universe around us. Um its goal is to investigate the early universe, um to look at things like the formation of galaxies and stars and planetary systems. These things which tend to be shrouded and shrouded in this thick layer of dust that other telescopes can't see through. Um, looking at possibly even the, the origins of life and how that came to be throughout the solar, um, throughout the universe. Okay. And the infrared is one of the most effective tools to do this with. Absolutely incredible, yeah. It's really exciting thinking about um, what potentially lies ahead. I mean, the other... The other big project that I've been thinking about recently is the uh, Square Kilometre Array, which you were saying, you know, um, we've been building radio telescopes mm. much, much bigger. And the Square Kilometre Array, you know, we could we could do an entire podcast on that. It's going to eventually connect radio <laughs> telescopes around the world to have, uh, well, cover an area of a, a square kilometre of, you know, viewing capability. Yeah, yeah we, we, we've been talking about how, like, telescopes have been getting bigger, but it, it's, it's with sort of using arrays and things talking to each other. Um, the other one that I, I think of is the... Um, Event Horizon Telescope, uh, which was telescopes all over, literally all over the world, from you know south, even one on the South Pole, um, to look at black holes, um, and it's it's really exciting. Um, another field which has been really advancing, um, of course, is not even looking at light. Uh, it's not looking at electromagnetic radiation, whether that's radio or visible light. Um, and that's gravitational mm. waves. You know, in the last decade, we've had these these various gravitational wave observatories coming online and and making their first detection of the, this thing that was predicted, you know, a hundred years ago back by Einstein. Um, and that's opening like an entire new avenue of astronomy. Um, and there's another new one of those uh, observatory coming up called the Einstein Telescope, um, which we have a feature on in the September issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine. So if you want to read about that or any of the other telescopes that, that we've talked about here, we have features on them in the September 2021 issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine. For this month's stargazing tip, we're going to be taking a closer look at our celestial neighbour, the Moon, uh, and in particular, two examples of a type of feature known as a Clair Obscure Effect. Uh, Clair obscure effects on the moon are tricks of light and shadow where sunlight and shade produce familiar shapes on the lunar surface. Um, and because the phases of the moon are cyclical and repetitive, over the years, some Clair obscure effects have become popular targets for lunar observers. Uh, this month, see if you can spot the lunar X and the lunar V. These are an X-shaped and a V-shaped formation that appear along the line dividing the lit and unlit portions of the moon as seen from Earth, which is known as the Terminator. 
Uh, both letters are visible for just a few hours, and you should be able to see both the X and the V at 9.30pm BST on the 13th of September. Um, use a pair of binoculars or a small telescope and see if you can spot them. The lunar X can be found about one quarter of the way up the terminator from the moon's southern edge, and the lunar V can be found slightly north of the halfway point. Uh, a full guide on how to see these two effects can be found by visiting skynightmagazine.com and searching for Lunar X in the search bar at the top of the page. So that's it from us this month. You can find out more about the telescopes that change astronomy in the September issue of BBC Sky Night magazine, where we also take a tour through variable stars that will be visible in the late summer night sky, tell you what you need to study if you want to prepare for a career in space science, and we'll be previewing the upcoming Einstein Telescope Gravitational Wave Observatory. And that's not forgetting our regular sections that will help you unlock the wonders of the night sky, find the right equipment to observe it with, and discover the best things to see after dark this month. So from all of us here at BBC Sky at Night magazine, goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Brittany Collie. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to Acast, iTunes or Spotify. <laughs>